Okay, hi everybody, and welcome to our semi-annual uh, episode of On Purpose. Um, I'm Dr. John Duffy, and over there is uh, your favorite Chicago-based uh, columnist and the creative director of Parent Nation, Heidi Stevens. Heidi, how are you? Hi, John. I'm good. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. We um, we've got kind of a, a, a special moment here today. Yes. Yeah, we have a guest who I'm just so um, incredibly honored and grateful um, to have joining us today. This is my friend Deb, and Deb and I were having dinner recently with another friend and just talking about the past few um, months and honestly, a couple years of our lives. Not that we haven't seen each other, but we hadn't seen each other in a setting where we could really sort of open up and, and dig into stuff. Um, mm. And the conversation was so um, moving to me and important that I felt like, gosh, is there a way to um, spread some of what I just learned with um, the folks who listen to us and, and, and with you, frankly, because of the work you do with families. And, and Deb said she would be super willing to come on and talk to us. And so Deb is here with us. Hi, Deb. Hi, it's great to be with both of you. Oh, thank you so thank much. Thank you so much, Deb. Um, yeah. Um, so we, we're going to be um, mindful of your time, Deb, and everybody who's listening and, and just kind of dive right in. So, so you and our other friend and I sat down for dinner and, um, you know, sort of um, dispensed with the niceties <laughs> and small talk <laughs> and got right into it. And um, I don't know, do you want to just sort of um, share, um, yeah, what you I'll set the what stage, you told yeah. me about? Yep. Well, well, so so one of my favorite things, and John, I know you can appreciate this knowing Heidi, I mean, any moment to have a conversation, you know, where there's a glass of wine involved and you can kind of dispense with the niceties and get to like the real discussion, um, it's such a gift. And so for a bit of context, um, I, I have the, the great privilege of being uh, a mom who works outside the home. And I can tell you, I have three teenage daughters and all the what I learned about parenting uh, along the way, many had said that when the kids were little, um, that that was going to be the really taxing time. That's the really time intensive time. And boy, um, I, I think I've learned front row that the teen years um, definitely require a whole nother level of interest and engagement. And so Heidi, as we were catching up, my, uh, my daughters are, my eldest is 18. Um, my middle is soon to be 16, and my youngest is soon to be 14. So um, you can imagine the the last two years, uh, a lot of what's occurring in our popular culture now with adolescents navigating mental health, how they're engaging in their um, social connectedness with friends and, and and all of the distractions of social media. I, I just, I feel like I have been in like this immersive uh, test case of uh, really reality of what's going on around us um, in the world. So it was it was great, Heidi, to be able to to sort of look at this, you know, first and foremost through our lens of being uh, moms uh, mm -hmm. who work outside the home. Yeah. Yeah, and I can I, imagine I, yeah. that just having um, that that little span from eighteen to your youngest is fourteen yeah, is kind of like kind of like kind of like parenting two generations of teenagers in a way, right? I mean, it's, yeah. it's, things change so rapidly in the world of our young people that, you know, it, it's not the same, right? You, you, you kind of have to learn constantly as you go. Well, yeah. I'm, 
I'm so glad, John, you, you, you sort of talk about it generationally, because I, I think, you know, where the where the story may it bring some relevance to, to what, John, you just said is from zero to 14, my oldest daughter, um, I would characterize her as that classic high achiever, overachiever um, in, a, in a way that just was she was just in the zone. She she was popular. She's incredibly intelligent. She was often, you know, very quick to build and form relationships with adults. Teachers loved her. She's excellent athlete, strong mentor, strong in her faith. And it's like, you know, you've kind of got that zero to 14 where things seem like, oh, we've got this. And and I know as a parent, I'm like, man, you know, hashtag nailed this one, probably need to start paying attention to her younger sisters. Um, and it's just, it, it, it can happen so, so quickly that when a child begins to struggle and it that struggle doesn't match any of your prior parenting journey with them um it, i think how how it landed for me and my husband and how we reacted to that shift of behavior um it really is like being in, in, in two entirely different generations and so how do you, you know i i don't know you know where the right part, part to pick up the story is or to be more specific about what exactly happened but but that is definitely that demarcation point for us uh, was from you know kind of the 14 to 18 where um, we've had our most painful learning yeah and what would you say were some early signs that your daughter was struggling and if you want to talk about um, your reactions to them where um, maybe when you look back on it now you think mm, I think I missed that or I wish I'd said this instead of that or yeah. or or conversely um I'm so glad I said that when I did <laughs> right well it's you know it's a little bit like a uh, if, for those of your listeners who are familiar with, with the former Glamour magazine, they used to have that section called the Glamour Don't. John, oh, yeah. I don't know if this is relating for you, but you know they have like the blackout over the eyes when, when <laughs> totally. they, they select the person of like what not to wear. Um, I'm going to have probably a little bit more to share in that category than, oh, look at me as the <laughs> style icon for parenting <laughs> a tea. Uh, but, but nonetheless, I, I can say this. So, it, you know, so at 14, uh, we were making the transition from uh, middle school, eighth grade, um, getting ready to high school. And as I said, my eldest had, had always just been totally dialed in, loved school. And in some of the early indicators that she was struggling is that she had a really, really tough transition to high school. And at the time, it was easy to write off because, you know, we're in Chicago, you know, big, big school. You just write off that everybody's a little unhinged. But it was particularly notable that she was having a very hard time finding her people, um, making friends, bridging friends, making connections um, in a way that she had a, a real sense of social identity or social connectedness and as a result became you know very anti-school anti um anti-people you know a lot a lot of judgment a lot of a lot of perspective on you know how you know, different social classes and and so there was a i think some of the early indicators was just a real lack of being able to find her footing in space and i i can say confidently i i just wrote that off as normal and normal transitions and i'm sure for a lot of families it is what i didn't though pay particular attention to is how that lack of social connectedness started to um, escalate into uh, a lot of um you know externalized emotion and um a lot of drama um in trying to stand out to fit in and um, and how some of those actions and behaviors started to invite bullying and again this is not something that i would have expected for my oldest but but certainly at the heart of it and 
and and at the time kind of looking at well you know she's being picked on or being you know I just wrote it off I said you know it's just her turn you know it, it, a lot of kids experience mm -hmm. that sense of os being ostracized mm -hmm. um, but then as the ex um, kind of the escalation of you know, anger and defiance and you know and disconnection with her sisters and disconnection with my husband and I again it was so tempting and easy to write off as normal teen behavior. But what I know now that I didn't recognize um, is that asking and sort of leaning in and being curious and not relying on uh, the historical successes and the historical comfort and the historical figuring it out, um, I, I, we didn't get curious. And, and, and ultimately when things became very known that there was a problem is when we stopped seeing the outburst and the drama and we started seeing the isolation mm. and that sense of withdrawing and a sense of really turning inward. Um, and sadly, it, it took a good year for this to unfold without so much as even the least amount of curiosity um, to go deeper than surfacey stuff with teens. And mm -hmm. what we learned um, after this year is that um, our daughter was struggling mightily with high degrees of social anxiety and general anxiety, um, depression, um, and was engaging in risky behavior. And um, all of this as an outgrowth of, of coping for what was real suffering. And, and while we wanted to be able to isolate this as to a blip, it's just a year, okay, and you know, kids feel anxious, everybody's depressed, everybody's anxious, this is of course pre-COVID. Um, our dismissal and wanting to not see the reality and not get curious enough um, really escalated into crisis. And so for the better part of the last two years, um, we have been at the front line of navigating the crisis that comes with diagnosable major depressive disorder, um, social anxiety and general anxiety disorders, and how that has then escalated into um, self-harming behaviors um, and and suicidality. And so, uh, so I have I have been in that zone and tunnel, and really walking that walk in in ways that, um, frankly, I I could have never anticipated, or expected, or imagined that this was gonna be any part of our family or our life. And it, it has been. And so yeah. um, the lessons learned along the way are, are some of the hardest, but I'm, I'm hoping can be il illustrative to other families who may be um, at the front, front end, maybe at that beginning stage, or those that are in the thick of walking with a child who struggles with mental illness and, and knowing how to be in relationship in the journey of struggle um, has certainly been difficult. Even your use of the word um, curious is so mm -hmm. enlightening to me, and I have to feel, I, I have to believe other people are are um, gravitating toward that word too. The idea of approaching your child's um, struggles with curiosity and not judgment or panic or um, a desire to explain it away, but to sit with it and be curious with it. And, and, and I think even that is guidance. And, and I'm also thinking about when we were at dinner, you talking about, and, and, and don't feel like you have to go into this if you don't want to, I know a podcast is different than a dinner, but um, <laughs> you talked about how you had um, for a little while, sort of the reflex of toxic positivity oh, around some of the stuff your daughter would, 
would bring to you. Do you want to talk about that a little yeah, bit? Yeah, I definitely want to talk about it because I didn't even know it was a thing. So, <laughs> so, um, so I'll I'll just start by by saying that you know one of the reactions when your when your ch- children are struggling with mental health is is to do just that. You want to try to explain it away. And one of the one of my first responses and reactions. Well, let me back up quickly just to say, I think a big reason at least in the first year that I could not pull, get my arms around that that something had shifted or changed for my oldest is that I was drawing so much positive identity as a mother to this really perfect kid. And, yeah. um, and I think that's, I, I think the, the hard part is to really admit how much I was drawing off of my daughter's successes as an indicator to me that I was that I was a good mom and that mm. I and that my choices to uh, I own a business and 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 have been always worked outside the home uh, throughout my children's all my children's lives and wanting that reinforcement to kind of counterbalance mom guilt or mom mm. shame to oh say God, well I, m- I must be doing it right because look how fabulous this one turned out and so so I brave think we, to say this stuff I relate so much to every single thing you're saying I'm sorry sorry to yeah, interrupt you no no, no so but brave. I but I think we need to we need to put language to this yeah, totally. because I, I I think it's it's really tempting to not pay attention to the fact that that we see our children's performance in whatever whether they're having success and also sadly when they struggle we see this as a direct correlation to our you know who we are and our identity is so wrapped up in this and so I just want to put a pin in that and say that's something that is was very true and it caused my response to be very ignorant in the early shifts because I needed her to be successful. I needed Mm -hmm. her to figure it out, which then leads to the toxic positivity. So my second um, general reaction and response was to try and to um, talk, talk her basically to talk her out of her pain by reminding her of all of the good things that Mm -hmm. she had going for her and reminding her of how fortunate she was to have a two parent family and to live in a, you know, in a, in a comfortable life and all of the people who loved her. And it seems like with every increasing reminder of her good fortune and her goodness and her successes and pumping her up and cheering her on, what I now know was actually one of the biggest indicators that were, was keeping her sick and keeping her hiding her illness from us because there was no safety. It was like the size of the disappointment that mm. she was experiencing in making me, making me that, that my whole identity about how, how perfect she was, was now going to be shattered was actually one of the significant things that kept her quiet and, and, and had her suffer in silence and a lot, a lot of what escalated to crisis. I also know that toxic positivity, again, my own coping mechanism, um, it is something that, uh, that maybe other parents are experiencing and, and I now have, and, and John, you, you, I'm sure can speak to this. I didn't even know the difference. I didn't know there was such a thing called validation. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I, and I think, what what I can say is that even in our best my best efforts to cheer my kid up and remind her how fabulous she was and trying to brush off her her pain or or try to rescue the or fix it or you know a willingness to step in and be her ally and all this stuff that I thought you know because I was going to have this great relationship with my teen daughter um, in the in the process of that I was invalidating her reality and I know that now validation doesn't mean I had to agree 
with her interpretation of what was going on in her life, but to, to create a lack of safety for my kid just to be where she was mm -hmm. is, um, is really painful to mm -hmm. know. Deb, I, I so appreciate, first of all, I, I agree with Heidi. I, I think it takes a lot of courage to um, just put your story out there and you describing so beautifully how with the best of intentions, these things can go sideways, right? You know, here you, you're like looking to like point out like all the good things in your life. You know, there's no reason to feel this way, right? You know, um, and uh, a lot of us, I think, do that and feel like there couldn't possibly be an element of toxicity here. There's so there are so many good things in my kid's life and she's just failing. She's she's forgetting. And so my intention is to remind her and that will make mm -hmm. things better, you know, and to yeah. recognize like, no, no, I've got to go deeper than that. I've got to validate the way she feels, even if I don't like it. I don't want her to feel that way. And I somehow take it personally. And I think that's where it gets really tricky for parents is when it becomes part of our parental report card, how our child is doing. Right. I mean, yeah. and so how did you get to the point where you were able to remove yourself from that and gain this kind of like long range perspective you have now? Well, uh, I can tell you that the crisis of getting smacked in the face with uh, a set of conditions and circumstances where your child's hurting herself and then the escalation of therapeutic treatment and care that is then required um it it was it, it's the equivalent of like that like like shocked so like sobriety um you know yeah. you, you know being punch drunk on my daughter's success and then suddenly having the sober reality like not only are things not just a little bit of struggle like we are now full on um, she she no longer has a will to want to live, um, yeah. has a way of sobering you up. And and again, I, I and that may just have had that may have had to be the way that we were going to really understand how deep seated her mental health struggles were. were. It may that may have been the only way we were going to figure it out. But I can say confidently now when I'm looking back and see all of the stop signs that I blew through and all of the ways that I responded to some of the early um, opportunities to, to, to bring therapy into her life or to create uh, space for and room to really be understanding without judgment or without punishment or without whatever it may be to, to, to try to get her behavior back in alignment. Um, that's That was the, the big wake up call. And and then and then you move into your new identity, right? So then after now mm. now you've got the kid that, that's struggling, and then there's the shock, like, well, we better make sure that nobody finds out about this. Like, mm. I don't want to be a member of that club because I know mm. how I've looked upon other parents whose kids are struggling. And and then again, all of those fears that you know that you don't want to have. And in my case, I'll, I'll just speak for my own journey. Like I, as a working mom, I didn't I didn't want to be the mom. Like oh, well, her kid's struggling because the mom was absent and traveled, and mm. you know mm. the, she's struggling because you know there's there's obvious tension in the family and between their mm. marriage. You know, you just you go through all of this stuff. So then you go in this this great season of shame and pain and isolation in and of yourself it wasn't instinctual to say all right well now that we know that we've got a crisis let's you know let's rally let's you know it, it, it was quite the opposite it was just this long slog of denial mm -hmm. and just hoping that we were going to land on the perfect therapy or the perfect medication and that she was going to get mm -hmm. better 
And when it was clear that wasn't going to be the case, we had to totally recalibrate how we engage relationally, not only in our family, but how we were engaging relationally with our friends and community. And and it's in the end, it's it, there have been so many blessings and so much beauty out of the struggle. But 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 that's how it came to pass that I had to radically change my thinking. Wow. Oh my gosh. Um, I just have to say for one second how lucky your kids are to have you as a mom. Oh. Mm-hmm. Completely, completely. No, I'm, I'm honest. Um, do you yeah. have time to tell? I do. I do. I, I, I do have some extended time. I, we, yeah, we can go, we can, we can dig deeper. I've, I've been, I've got the time for sure. Okay. Cause you told me a story about running into someone at the grocery store who sort of had a vague, a, a friend at the grocery store who sort of had a vague sense of what your family had been going through, but had not reached out to you and yeah. talk about that and, and then what it led to. Yeah. Well, so, so I think, so once you become clear that, that there's some struggle and we sort of got to the space where we're we didn't want our we didn't want our struggle to be wasted because we had an anticipation that there was others in our in our community or other other families that would be struggling. And so one notable moment pre grocery store was when we decided to alert our kind of close family friends. And I would say in our community there was probably 15 families that in various stages we kind of did life with and grew up with our, you know, our nannies were best friends. It was like that sort of really tight community in 15. And what we learned after we shared our story and what we had been experiencing, we learned that 10 of the 15 families were having the exact same experiences with their kids. Mm-hmm. And only one wow. of the 10 of us were talking about it. Mm-hmm. So I want to really make sure that your listeners understand this, that by talking about it, not only did it create capacities for us to be relationally uh, more supported and more connected, and I'm sure relationally more judged. So I don't want to be all Susie Sunshine on this one. But what it also made available is nine other families now are living more authentic versions of their own lives. Mm-hmm. So that that's that was critical. Mm-hmm. So within that extension of community, one of the families um, one of the the moms that was in the community, I had not reached out. We had not had a, a direct conversation in, in about a year and a half uh, when when all of this struggle was occurring and, and and knowing that she was in the loop now of of what had been occurring for for us. Um, I ran into her at the grocery store, and I want to say right now, she is a wonderful person, has been a great friend, and I am I am fortunate to have done life and do life with her, and I still do life with her. Um, and yet her way of engaging with us, I think, is very telling. And I think it's important in, in as you are navigating, if you have friends or people that you know that are struggling. So she did three things that were life-changing for me. The first thing that she did in her greeting of me was to move into a three to four minute diatribe about what a terrible friend she had been. And just, I'm the worst friend. I'm so sorry. I should have called. I didn't call. Mm. And there was this real sense that she was seeking my forgiveness and comfort. I can tell you that in the headspace I was in, I, I was uh, happy to let her off the hook. I was happy to say it's okay, it's no <laughs> no problem. But but I can just tell you, if if your first instinct is to get someone who's struggling to comfort you because you feel guilty or you don't know what you know you feel badly, it's not a good use of the emotional energy in the exchange. But that was step number one. Okay, step number two, and this happens particularly around um, when when the conversation turns to self harm or suicide. 
The second thing she did, which many often do, is she started to relay to me a number of stories that she was aware of, of people either in her own immediate community or things that she'd heard on the news. And often people will tell you the stories about uh, children that they know or families that they know that had a child that was successful in killing themselves. Now, when you're in the midst of your own crises, while I appreciate there's a desire to find empathy that, hey, I, I get it. I know this suicide thing is real. Um, and let me tell you about a family that I know and their son, you know, was, you know, star athlete and president of the class. And they went to dinner and they came home and, you know, he'd hung himself <laughs> is not a great exchange to build a kind of warmth or safety in exchange. But I knew I knew where she was coming from. So so I think that's important. But then the last piece, and this is the piece that inspired the new work that I'm doing now. And the reason why I'm on this podcast, frankly, is the third piece was sort of relaying out loud a fear. And the fear was that as she was reflecting on the number of kids that that she knew that were struggling in a similar fashion to my daughter, is how fearful she was that her daughter's who were friends with this community of girls that are struggling, that they too were going to start struggling. And again, I know she was being authentic, expressing her own fear. It's reasonable for her to have fear, but how it landed for me as the parent who's already steeped in pain and shame and struggle is it affirmed my, it confirmed my worst fear that she was concerned my kid was contagious. Yes. I know that wasn't the intention, but that was definitely how it landed. And I thought, bless her heart. She just wants to love on me right now. She just wants to be empathetic. She just wants to be reflective of her own distress about my distress. And yet her first three responses were injurious. And I think my first three three responses, when I've been with people prior to this experience, I've been injurious. I've been unsafe in my rescuing, trying to fix, trying to let me make a connection. Let me introduce you to people. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's so many things that people do that are so well-meaning. So it inspired a desire for for me to, I thought, I got to go and do some research. I've got to talk to trauma specialists. I've got to talk to uh, therapeutic specialists. I got to meet the John Duffys and figure out how do we understand trauma and then how do we find ways to teach people how to care for people and what do you say that is helpful, that isn't injurious? What do you do in a way that will, will help? And ultimately, um, I settled on that I'm going to launch a research project. And through a a connection on LinkedIn, a woman I I spoke at a conference a number of years ago reached out to me and offered to introduce me to someone um, who could be a part of my research project. And much to my delight, I met Jen Marr, who is the CEO and founder of a company called Inspiring Comfort. Uh, She's a book author of a book that just released a few weeks ago called Showing Up. And I kid you not, she has spent 10 years researching trauma and has developed a training methodology to teach people how to do empathy, how to care and comfort and not comfort like a cozy noun, but comfort like the strength of coming together in community and and bringing strength in community and comfort. She has created an entire um, methodology and program to teach people how to show up. And 
I couldn't believe my good fortune that one, uh, she just saved me 10 years of research. And number two, <laughs> that she has the practicalities to know how to teach organizations and leaders and managers and parents and and and, and uh, school school boards and associations how to do care and comfort when people are struggling. Mm-hmm. Oh, I just I'm stunned, stunned by, by just the knowledge, the knowledge that's, that's out there. Out there that's that's been, 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 am I echoing? Am I echoing? Yep, you're echo. I do too. Um, oh well, uh, sorry. It sounds Check cool, on. Heidi. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> I have someone standing behind me repeating everything I say. <laughs> um, I I love that she does this work, and I love the idea of um, turning it into almost policy. Um, sort of not just leaving it up to chance that people will stumble upon, but the idea that like she's actually and and you actually are approaching. I think. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, workplaces and organizations about about teaching this as sort of a curriculum. Yeah, I mean, and and I I was stunned that that was even possible. Right. And and what I can say is that um, so part of her research, she describes that there are mindsets and behaviors um, that form something that she calls the awkward zone, and she uses in her analogy the grocery store conversation. And I was like, oh my goodness, it was divine. It was like a God moment. I'm like, how is it that she is literally describing the experience and she's already solved for this? And yeah. so it's my great desire is to is to help people understand that this is a teachable skill, that this is something that we can get better at. And what I've learned, the more open I am about my own lessons learned and my own sense of like what I missed, there is this great receptivity. I, I'm stunned at the number of people who want to get better at this. It's just yeah. we didn't we didn't know what to do or how to do it. So right. I think right. I think Jen's work is going to be transformative, really, in this space. Yeah, yeah. Well, it sounds like yours is as well. And and when I think about empathy, years ago, um, uh, a colleague of mine and I went to, 20 years ago. We went we were went going around to schools talking about the importance of teaching empathy and social emotional learning um, in classrooms. And we were kind of like, the timing was wrong. And we were kind of laughed out of there by teachers saying, we don't have time to teach this. We have to teach math and English and, and, and history and everything else. Now, for I think a number of like cultural, societal reasons, and just your exchange in the grocery store, the timing feels so like of the moment to bring empathy into like policy and uh, uh, kind of a national, maybe international discussion, uh, because if we foster more of it, you know, you point out in your, in just that one example, how with the best of intentions, we can stumble. And instead of creating a connection that builds us up and makes us feel better or, or connected enough that we're held a little bit, um, yeah. It can make us feel alone, you know, and that that's such a um, to, to bridge that divide um, will change things in ways I think that are immeasurable. Yeah, John, you're, you're so right. And and here's I think what's interesting. And this is where I, I, I and so where this intersects with my life and the work that I, I get to do um, as a consultant that works in growth effectiveness and, and helping organizations build their talent experiences. 
there have been two recent articles in the last few weeks. Um, one is by Bain and & Company, and uh, the other was published um, just yesterday under Harvard Business Review. And what it's pointing to is this rehumanizing our work and and our and and teaching um, people how to create conditions not only for psychological safety but for human flourishing, and that when you engage in that and place a priority on that as much as you would place a priority on the technicalities of math or science or engineering or whatever it may be, that it it shapes things it it, it actually heals things and creates this this sense of uh, differentiation in which organizations and companies can stand out. I mean, we look at the great resignation, you know, when you unpack all of the reasons why people are leaving their jobs, it's easy to say, well, it's COVID or, you know, it's Gen Z, they're just, you know, they're gig workers. Ultimately, what the research tells us is that people are leaving because they don't, see, they don't feel seen and they don't feel valued. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, that's so foundational. Like those are basic human conditions. So right. it is. I think we are at the we are at the at, at this right at the precipice of seeing some of this transition in the prioritizations in our schools, um, yeah, transition yeah. in what we're teaching. Yeah, I sure hope so. Um, we need yeah. to let you go. I know you need to get to a meeting, um, <laughs> but I also don't want to cut you off if there's anything you want to say. But I want to be mindful that you're probably like. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, 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 first of all, I just I, I want to say thank you both for for creating space to, to, to do the conversations you're having in, on a general level. So I want to affirm uh, both of you that that we creating community around hard conversations um, and creating personification for for some of the you know some of the catchphrases that sometimes get too easily bantered about or posted on social media like we can do hard things and it's okay not to be okay mm-hmm. um it's one thing to say those things platitudinally and it's another thing to to really dig in and say what does that actually mean and right. what do i have to be willing to come you know sort of observe in my own life and how do i how do i find grace to extend myself and others um, is is really the space of it's okay not to be okay. And I just thank you for holding some space to talk about this. I, I also want to be really encouraging. If there's anything that I've said to anyone today that that is giving you one shred of hopefulness, that you know what, it, being curious and just in, 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 in seeking resources and in, in finding safe people, probably the best piece of advice I got early on is a, a woman I was introduced to who was, I'll say, a year uh, farther ahead of me in the struggle. And one of the smartest things she said is she she said, you got to find your squad. And you got to be really honest and really transparent because it would be in that space that people will be willing to kind of get in the tunnel with you when you need it. And there'll also be the kind of people that will know how to pull you out. And so I am grateful that I I get to live in that space now. You know, I get to be the I get to be the safe person that if you have a child who's struggling, um, I get to be a safe person that knows how to jump in the tunnel with you. Um, and I bring snacks when I'm in the tunnel. I just want you to know. Uh, but I'm also, but I'm also the person who can also remember how to get out. And um, and so I think it's it, this this podcast and this conversation is I think is so important. So thank you for the privilege of letting me share some of the pain um, that is producing some some real beauty in my life right now. Thank you, Deb. Well, and promise us that you'll join us again, Deb, as this as this work progresses. 
I absolutely will. So thank you for that awesome. invitation. So the answer is yes. Y'all be well and enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks again for having me. Thank you, Deb. Um, yeah. That, that was that was amazing. <laughs> that's that's the best TED talk I've ever attended that I didn't know I was going to. Right. I know. Yeah. That's exactly how I felt after dinner. Um, and I just felt like, man, Deb, as many people who can benefit from your voice um, and perspective on this, the better. And she was just like so kind and, and willing right away to talk. And, and to be clear, I feel like this is important to point out, her daughter is starting to tell these, um, tell her, her story as well. It, um, Deb talked about how she did, um, speaking of TED Talk, did it, um, you know, sort of a high school version of a TED Talk for her school. Um, wow. And is really wants to um, be more um, transparent about what she went through with her own friends and peers. And I think that's important to point out so that no one feels like, oh, man, you just kind of, you know, aired all your daughter's dirty laundry on a podcast. It's right. not that at all. Um, she, I, I, I know her daughter, my daughter grew up with her daughter. We, this is very much like, um, she's okay with her mom telling this and, and that's not always the case. And it's completely fine if you, you know, your daughter or son says don't share it and you don't, but, um, in, in Deb's case, this was all okayed by, by her daughter. So I feel like that's important to point out. Um, and I just feel like, Absolutely. oh my God, that grocery store story. Like I've been that, I've been the friend who said all the wrong things. Um, I've been the friend standing there like, wait, I'm supposed to comfort you now about what I'm going through. Like, I just, I feel like, right. God, that story is stunning and rings so true. Um, and to then turn around and decide to do something about it and, um, it's just beautiful. And so if anyone, the, the book, that book that, that Deb referenced is called Showing Up. Um, and the author is Jen Marr, M-A-R-R. Um, she gave me a copy of Jenner and I'm, I'm going through it now. And it's, um, I, I mean, I think it's good. Oh, it sounds like such important, powerful work. And I, and I have to say, like, not only I, I, the grocery store story is sticks with me because I feel the cringe of it. And I also... I appreciate Deb's pointing out how the intention, how she understood the intention mm -hmm. behind that, that other person, you know, and yet everything mm -hmm. felt like it was doing a little bit, it was digging the hole a little bit deeper. Right. And, um, and I, it reminds me of a conversation I had with a client of mine who happens to be in grad school for psychology, who talked about being taught to work with families in that way. Like, don't, don't let them forget what's good in their lives. You know, like kind of mm. work, work from the best of intentions instead of kind of like, you know, really openly going to the awkward spot, you know, mm. and, and, mm. Uh, you know, and visiting that with that person um, and how important that is. Even I think in my profession where we're supposed to be dealing with the hard things, <laughs> pardon <Yeah>. that, <laughs> pardon returning right. that expression, but <laughs> um, right. that, that, you know, we're, we're given a, an option to sidestep that if it's too uncomfortable for us, you know, <laughs> like right. us who are trained to be empathic. <laughs> right. Well, and, and as you said, I mean, it, it is often coming from a good place. It's not so much like, oh, it makes me uncomfortable to ask them that hard thing. It's like, I don't want to make them uncomfortable. I mean, I can't tell you how many bereaved parents I've spent time with over the last two decades, either through work or friendship, who have said to me, 
no one asks about her. No one asks yep. me about him, their child who's passed, because they don't want to make me sad. They don't want to bring it up if my mind isn't there right now. You know what? My mind is always there. My mind is right. never not right. there. Go ahead yeah. and ask me, you know, for a fun memory or what age he would be now or something that acknowledges What are, what are his that, friends doing? Yeah. What are his friends doing? You remember him. You know what a big deal he was to me. You know what a big deal he still is to me. Like, those are the things that I hear over and over from people who, um, I mean, a, enough times to where it's just like, I think that is universal. I mean, I hate, I actually hate trying to make anything universal, but that one, I feel like, man, everybody says that, um, that, you know, it's, it's so much worse to have people sort of sidestep this huge, huge part of your life in every conversation and still expect to have some sort of intimacy with you in terms of friendship and, and honesty. And, um, and I think there's a little bit of that in that grocery store um, encounter too. For um, sure. And, and there's kind of, there's in, in the connection and I have a case in point that uh, the, the, there's this richness and this beauty and this depth that wouldn't show up otherwise. If you if you sidestep, um, you were uh, generous enough to in, in a piece about um, uh, a boy who died by suicide. Um, you talked about my brother Tom in uh, about maybe a year, year and a half ago or so, if you mm -hmm. remember. And yeah. um, I don't know if I've talked to you about this, but I started hearing from people about Tom, people mm. who knew him in high school. And, yeah. um, and there was a lot, I could tell people were tiptoeing, like, is John okay talking about this? And I've kind of like, well, yeah, I did, you know, talk to a reporter, like, <laughs> it's, it's in yeah. the paper. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but people sent me things like Tom was, I, I learned things about him. I had no idea about, like, he was the editor of the poetry magazine in my high school after I graduated. And I'm like, Oh, I did not know that. Nobody ever told me that. And yeah. now I have like four copies of this thing that, you know, oh, are, it, it. it's the most amazing um, thing. And an ex-girlfriend of his wrote me and said, oh, I think about Tom all the time. And, and that I can't tell you how meaningful that was for me, how you, mm -hmm. you Julie would say like, yeah, John spent about two weeks crying. <laughs> in the best mm. way mm. after that, just like you yeah. having these memories and knowing he had these moments. So sometimes you learn something that you didn't know too. Um, yeah. but even, even like in Deb's situation where, you know, you, you haven't lost anybody, but you're, you're struggling, you know, to mm -hmm. ask about like, you know, how is he or she doing, you know, like that's, mm -hmm. um, it's just, it's just really, really powerful. And I hear all the time people saying like, mm, people, people will skip the aisle on it. If my kid is struggling or hasn't been in school for mm -hmm. a while or, you know, oh. whatever. And, um, and so I feel isolated and alone in this and judged just like, just exactly like Deb was saying, you know, like she, she articulated it so beautifully. Um, and just, I, I, I'm in awe of her ability to, you know, step away from that fear and that judgment and that ego and, and really like walk the walk with her daughter, recognizing like, you know, okay, I played some role in this and, and to the extent that, you know, you have this perfect kid 
and you're kind of very married to that narrative, right? You know, where yeah. you want, you're like, I want that to be the narrative. That's a yeah. good story. That's a better, and, totally. um, and it's Who so doesn't hard. want that takes... to be that narrative, you know? Yeah, of course. Not, of course. not even like a certain personality type would want that narrative. No. Everybody <laughs> wants that narrative. The personality type is just parents, right? It's just person. human. <laughs> yes. <laughs> human personality. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, so um, that that was um, absolutely lovely. She's brilliant, and thank I, I love when somebody with Deb's kind of sensibility, and I can tell she's empathic and pragmatic, and I cannot wait to see what work comes out of this project. Yeah, yeah, I'm so excited to know about it. I want to I want to track down Jen Marr, the author of this book, and, oh, and maybe even write yeah. about it because I just think it's. Like the more people who know about it, the better. Just something that needs to be on yep. the world more. Yeah. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I want to read that right. book as well. Yeah. We have taken up um, more. Way too much. Time than we <laughs> are allowed. We're not sure how many Did people's time. But yeah. We've taken up. We've taken up an hour of people's time. So sorry. I think the FCC it, is at my door. Hang on. <laughs> 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 no, we, no, we obliged to take a commercial break? <laughs> the sponsors are complaining. Just a break. <laughs> we don't have sponsors. <laughs> no sponsors. <laughs> but Pepsi, if you're if we're we're waiting by the phone. Um, totally. Yeah, oh, right. Uh, well, me. that was that was awesome. Thank you for letting me in on it. Um, uh, seriously, Heidi. And um, and we will um, we'll we'll be back at this sometime in the not too distant future. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, for sure. We will record um, again. I, I, I feel confident about that. <laughs> this is this is as much of a commitment as we're willing to make at this point. But we will record again. <laughs> this will not be the last time you hear from us. <laughs> okay. All right, Have a great John. day. All right. Bye, Heidi. Bye. -bye.